The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Meantime, it is 8 p.m. on the East Coast. And if you're just joining us, welcome to our CNBC election night special business on the ballot. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick, coming to you live from CNBC's global headquarters. We are taking a deep dive on the business issues at play in the midterms and how the results could impact corporate America and your money. You can see the results as they come in on the bottom of your screen as we speak. Coming up this hour, we have more conversations with business and thought leaders. We're going to be talking about the impact of today's election on your portfolio with Guggenheim's Scott Minard, Dan Niles from Satori Fund, and Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass. Plus, we'll be breaking down the issues that corporate America cares most about with the Chamber of Commerce CEO, Suzanne Clark. And we'll be discussing foreign policy and trade implications with Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institution. Right now, though, we want to bring in our very own Elon Moy, who has been closely following all of the business issues at play in the lead up to this election. And Elon, we do have some key calls that are being made. So what can you tell us at this point? Well, that's right. NBC News is now declaring the winner in two key Florida races. In the race for Senate, NBC is now projecting that Marco Rubio, the incumbent Republican senator, will hold on to his seat with 55.5 percent of the votes tallied so far. That compares to Democratic Representative Val Demings, who is running against, who has 43.5 percent of the votes that have been tallied so far. In the race for governor, NBC is projecting that Ron DeSantis will win his bid for re-election. He has 57.5 percent of the votes tallied so far compared to Democrat Charlie Crist, who has 41.9 percent of the vote. Again, 69 percent of the total votes have been counted so far in these races. NBC News making these new projections now, despite the fact both of them going for Republicans, despite the fact that President Biden was campaigning in the state just last week. Now, in some other states, the polls are now closed in Georgia, though the Senate and governor's races are still too early to call. Polls are open for another hour in Arizona. Pennsylvania is keeping some locations open until 10 p.m. because of a paper shortage. So it may not be clear tonight which party is going to win control of Congress. But there is a lot riding on the results for both businesses and investors. If Democrats hold the line, they get a second crack at their agenda. That could include extending the enhanced child tax credit, imposing a global corporate minimum tax and capping the cost of insulin. But if Republicans win one or both chambers of Congress, we could be in for a political food fight. Now, the first test could come as soon as December 16th. That's when government funding runs out. If and how these two parties reach a deal could determine the tenor of the next two years. Then there's December 31st. Several key provisions of the GOP's corporate tax cuts will start to phase out or expire then. There's already been some talk of a potential compromise, but the results tonight could determine how much appetite there actually is for that. And finally, of course, there's a debt ceiling. That's likely to come up again around the summer of 2023. Top Republicans have already signaled that they plan to use that deadline to push for spending cuts if they take the House, definitely if they win the Senate. So, guys, we still have a long night ahead of us, potentially long days or even weeks. A small swing in these toss-up races could make a big difference in which party has power. Andrew? Oh, Elon, the, the numbers in, in, in Georgia, that's, a, that's not, obviously not a final number, but that's a much bigger margin than the RCP. You mean the numbers in Florida? Rubio. Numbers in Florida. That's a much bigger margin than the RCP average. Does that say anything about whether the polls are are not necessarily, I mean, they're never that accurate. Well, there are a number of different polls that go into the RCP average. Some of them may be more reliable than others. But what I can tell you is that a sort of mid-single-digit margin for Rubio, assuming that margin holds once all the votes are tallied, would be considered a pretty good night for Rubio. We're looking at double digits here. That could potentially signal an extremely good night, obviously not just for Rubio, but for Republicans writ large. So, yeah, so we'll see what it looks like once all of the votes are in. Much but certainly than, this than, margin I is quite large. much closer, supposedly. What's the paper shortage? The paper shortage. So apparently there were not enough ballots um, 
at uh, Lucerne County in Pennsylvania. And so voters who were coming in to vote were not able to actually receive the ballots in order to, to actually so cast, much stronger cast than anticipated, so, basically is what that means. Well, unclear if there was a problem with the actual paper getting there or if there were so many people that they ran out of paper. But the folks who were there at the time said they couldn't wait around for more paper to arrive and perhaps they couldn't come back later. And so that's why that county is extending uh, the poll opening times. Did you go? Did you do the thing today? It looked like I, I was did. putting it into yeah. a shredder. You know what I mean? That's oh, what I, I handed it to a scanner. Yeah, I did too. It's a scanner. Yeah. yeah. But then the second time I did it, it, it worked. Um, How about the third time? <laughs> you, come on, Andrew. Come on, Joe. Come on. It's I, don't, I don't have a, a you know a, a symbol. Thank you. Yeah, you got a Thank you, right. uh, We want to talk a lot more about what the midterms could mean for your money. We want to bring in star investor Scott Minard. He's the global chief investment officer of Guggenheim Partners. Good evening to you, Scott. You've been relatively bearish about the economy come 2023, but I think you've been somewhat bullish, at least short term, on the markets. So what are you expecting from this uh, election and how do you think it's going to relate, therefore, to the market? Well, Andrew, thank you for paying attention. Um, I think that, uh, look, divided government is a great outcome. Uh, You know, I subscribe to the philosophy of Will Rogers, which is I'm glad I don't get all the government that I pay for. Um, And so, you know, divided government is going to mean probably very little uh, movement on the fiscal side, meaning we're not going to get tax cuts, uh, nor are we going to get much increase in government spending. Um, That's good from the standpoint of allowing the the economy to cool off more. And, uh, you know, May... Uh, actually limit the amount of uh, hiking that the Fed has to do. But history shows us that after the midterm election, even when the Fed is raising rates, uh, we could expect for the next six months to see a pretty substantial rally, uh, probably, you know, high single digits, mid uh, double digits. Uh, And then the question will be next year in a recession. Uh, If we do get a recession, then uh, every time uh, we've had a midterm election um, where we've, it's been followed by a recession in the next year. You get negative returns in the following year. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, we, we keep talking about the statistic about how much the stock market moves in a positive direction historically after a midterm like this. Uh, and yet the question happen- is really what happens on the other side. You're still bearish on the other side. I am. I, I think that, uh, look, I, I think we could get up to 4,100 on the S&P. Uh, before we uh, you know, see some sort of a, a pullback. But, you know, we're still in a long-term bear market. The downtrends are solidly in place. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the Fed is uh, uh, being uh, more hawkish than it realizes. Uh, you know, we are have an unprecedented uh, reduction in the money supply. Uh, it has not happened since the Great Depression. Uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, I think Powell's statements last Wednesday tell you that, you know, they're going to do everything they have to in terms of raising rates uh, until they see inflation break. But the forward indicators of inflation already are showing us that that things are starting. Uh, inflationary Scott, speak, pressures to the are politi- speak to the politics of this. If the Republicans do win, for example, one of the things that people expect is that uh, the tax cuts uh, that were put into place earlier may become permanent. Do you look at that and say that's a good term, good thing long term? Do you say that's inflationary? That's a problem? I mean, how, how do you how do you how do you think about that? Well, Andrew, I'm, I'm uh, I think I'm one of the last monetarists on the face of the earth. Uh, I believe inflation entirely is the result of monetary policy. But fiscal policy, um, you know, is what determines what potential output is. And so, um, you know, if we are reckless with fiscal policy, uh, then it's going to damage long term potential growth. And, you know, in a number of areas of policy, uh, for instance, immigration, uh, you know, we're not growing the workforce as fast as we need to. Uh, You know, a hawkish stance on immigration over the next two years is going to be bad for long term growth. And, uh, you know, it's going to make it you know harder to get inflation to slow down. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, the thing I think we're really fighting over here is the long term potential of economic growth, not necessarily the rate of inflation. Scott, I, I, time goes so quickly that I don't know when you said this, but I, I thought you were pretty worried at one point about a pretty significant 
um, sell-off. And I, I don't know whether now you're saying we get a, a pretty decent, um, is it a bear market rally? Do you think we've moved into a new secular bull or, or, or not? Do we go to new highs? Joe, I, I think we're in a bear market rally. Uh, and I say 4,100 is kind of, you know, the, the upside potential, if I'm right. Uh, you know, as far as a pullback is concerned, uh, I would expect to see the S&P uh, before this is all over somewhere in the area of 3,300, uh, maybe as low as 3,000. Maybe as low as 3,000. Hey, Scott, one other question I had for you actually involves multinational companies, sort of the global geopolitical situation that we're, we're in right now, which is how do you think the relationship between the U.S. and China and, and U.S. companies that do business in China is going to change? Well, you know, I, I really wish that, um, Andrew, we would get some uh, uh, reason back into foreign policy, especially in relationship with China. Uh, I think that our policies have been needlessly hostile. Um, you know, we always operated, um, you know, in, in the uh, post-Mao era uh, with China with a, a carrot and a stick. And the carrot was, look at all the gains you can get for your people and your economy. And the stick was, if you get out of line, you know, we've got military power, we're going to use it. Uh, in the Trump administration, and then even going into the Biden administration, you know, we've taken away the carrot. Uh, no matter what the Chinese do, uh, the only policy tool we have is a stick. And I think longer term, that's not good for, uh, uh, you know, the China-U.S. Um, uh, uh, so, Scott, though, if, you're, if, you think about the politics, if you think about the politics of the election today, though, given how bipartisan an issue that hawkish stance seems to be, maybe you could argue it's more hawkish among Republicans and Democrats, but hawkish nonetheless, D does the outcome change that? No, not at all. I think we're, uh, uh, I think we're on a predetermined path in relationship to our, our China policy, and uh, you know it it would take something uh, major uh, to see a shift in that. And, and then similarly, I want to just ask you about big tech and what you think happens to the Fang complex and how you think the government, the U.S. government that is, looks at these companies, thinks about competition and thinks about regulation, given how oddly, and maybe it's not odd, there is a lot of bipartisanship about the problems with big tech, big, big tech and the question is, who's gonna regulate them more or less? Right, well, look, there's a very good argument that um, uh, for antitrust proceedings in big tech. And, um, you know, I actually have felt that way, Andrew, for years. Uh, a lot of these companies have put up a lot of barriers that have created artificial monopolies. And, uh, you know, so so from a policy standpoint, uh, you know, some kind of antitrust uh, regulation would seem appropriate. Uh, I'm not so sure, though, that based on what I understand from, uh, uh, you know, the Republican constituency, that they're ready to move on that. And so I think that uh, the Republican leaning in the House and the Senate will make it harder to, to get that done in the next two years. So, Scott, with the pension crisis uh, that we saw over in the UK, we learned, and you know, there's three more letters that, that would, were something that was bad if it goes south. If something does break, you said the Fed might break something. Well, we already know the letters. Are there going to be new letters? Is it going to be in junk? Is it do you have a, a, a could it be totally different this time or will it be familiar what what goes south? Well, you know, Joe, the history of these kinds of things is they come in, they come at us out of the blue. Uh, you know, the Asian crisis, who would have thought that it would have been a hedge fund blowing up uh, that uh, caused the pivot in policy? Uh, you know, uh, Orange County, who thought some county out in California, oh, yeah. uh, you know, would have itself over levered in derivatives? So and then, you know, of course, what happened in, in, in the UK, I don't think that was on anybody's list. So uh, I think the big risk is here that, that something will come at us out of the dark. Uh, now, there's a lot of, you know, fertile soil out there. Right. Uh, the emerging markets, uh, uh, given the amount of dollar denominated debt in, in their corporate sector, which is at record highs, both as a percent and in total numbers, that's, that's a good shot. That's a good place to look. You know, other things like direct lending um, and private mm. credit, 
uh, things that have been pushed into the shadow banking system uh, is another place where we could get something out of the dark. Right. But it's it's impossible to pick okay. these right. uh, Boy, that's enough. events Stop. ahead of time. <laughs> Stop. Never we, we got to run. But no, no. But I, while we have you, I'll just that's do so 20 seconds things. real quick. Uh, Binance FTX. Talk about out of, yeah. the, out of the dark. Bitcoin. Crypto. Wow. <laughs> Wasn't that something? Um, you know, look, I, I think it's the same thing I've been saying about uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think the crypto uh, um, technology is real. I think that uh, uh, we are in the early days of uh, what's yet to come in virtual currency. But on the other hand, uh, it's the Wild West. And so uh, I would expect to see another shoe to drop. And, uh, you know, I'm on record, Andrew, saying that I thought Bitcoin could get to 8,000. Uh, well, at least we made some progress today. Yeah. Scott Minard, um, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We have a lot uh, more coming uh, your way up next. Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institution breaks down the pressing geopolitical issues at play in the midterm from China to Russia to Saudi Arabia uh, and more. And then later, we're going to talk to Dan Niles from the Satori Fund about how tech investors should be positioned uh, based on the balance of power, which way it swings. We're coming back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. From aid to Ukraine to cracking down on China to Russia's sanctions, there are a slew of foreign policy issues that are at stake tonight. For more on this, we want to bring in Michael O'Hanlon. He's the Brookings Institution's senior foreign policy fellow. And, Michael, there is a lot at stake here. I mean, you run through these issues. They're all pretty tense. They could get even more tense with issues. Why don't we start out first up with China to kind of expect what we can expect with China um, right now, things are pretty tense, uh, but the Republicans have said that they are very willing to push this. I think would like to see Taiwan independence even potentially called. How are we going to maneuver this, and what do you see playing out? Hi, Becky. Well, if that's really a serious Republican view, then that gives the Democrats a huge political opening because it is downright uh, enormously risky, and I would say verging on reckless. The idea that we could encourage Taiwan to declare independence and really think we can get away with that based on the idea that China has made this the red line in their entire foreign policy for decades, and that China now has a military that's extremely capable within 100 miles of its own shore. You know, we, we still have the best military, but China's a lot closer. So the Republicans themselves, Kissinger, Nixon, others, they're the ones that invented the whole concept of a one China policy. I think they should go back to their roots and think hard about why it made sense then and still does now. There is no way that we can protect Taiwan with complete confidence. You know, we have a hard enough time fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. War is unpredictable. Fighting China over Taiwan would risk World War III, and it would just not make sense. I'm sorry to be so adamant, but that idea, you're right, is starting to make its way into the conversation and it is extraordinarily dangerous. You think it's a mistake that President Biden has repeatedly said that we would support independence in Taiwan if it were to break out? Well, what he said is we would come to their military defense. Mm -hmm. He has not said that we would support their independence. And that's a big distinction. Well, no, I mean, you know, you're assuming that the only reason China would ever attack Taiwan is because Taiwan declares independence. What I'm saying is China could just decide it's tired of waiting. Mm -hmm. And what Biden's saying is, uh, in that situation, then we are indeed going to, at least under my presidency, uh, he's saying, 
come to their defense. And that's much different than encouraging them to go ahead and provoke the crisis in the first place. So um, I think Biden's pushed it a little far for my taste. But uh, I think it's just as well that China hear that this president is inclined to defend Taiwan in the event that China, uh, you know, begins an aggression. Now, you're right. The, uh, the, 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 the details matter. And if Biden's basically giving Taiwan a blank check, that is dangerous. And one of the ways Taiwan could provoke this kind of an attack would be a declaration of independence. So I think President Biden should have been a little more conditional and not so categorical. Uh, but it's still different from encouraging Taiwan to break off from China, you know, definitively. Michael, if that were to happen, and what would American businesses that do business in China have to do? So McDonald's, Starbucks, so many companies left Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. What would happen in this instance? Would you see Apple and Starbucks and McDonald's and Nike and everybody leave at one time? Would that happen? Could they do that economically? It was one thing to leave, to, to, to leave Russia. It would be quite another to leave China. You're right, except that I think in this scenario, China is already at war with Taiwan before these companies even have to think more than five or 10 minutes about what they'll do. So that's the huge distinction with the situation with Russia, because if indeed we then follow through with military deployments of our own, frankly, the business community can at least feel like it's, in this case, going to be the second most important player because we're going to be at war against China. And so I think, you know, the question at this point is going to be the survival of the human race, not the survival of a given American business. I mean, I'm being a little melodramatic, but only a little. Uh, if, if Taiwan declares independence, this is for China about the only reason I think they would actually decide we have to go now with a military assault. They might not try to invade. They might try to do a you know, massive blockade operation and cyber attacks. But either way, they're going to be making it very difficult for the United States to sit out of that war. So I don't really think it's going to be fundamentally a decision for the business community. I think this is going to be life and death for the United States and its allies. Michael, when you look at Ukraine and Russia, the Republicans have been pretty vocal about how they don't want to spend a lot more money um, sending it to Ukraine to defend themselves against Russia. Uh, at the same time, we were discussing earlier in the program the, the idea that there are some people in the Biden administration who would like to have an export ban when it comes to energy, and that would really hurt our allies in Europe at a very critical time. So how do those two potential threats play out? Well, that's a great question, Becky. But of course, there are also people in this administration that want President Zelensky to start talking and negotiating with Russia, or at least making the appearance of doing so. I think this could be actually a productive area of disagreement in American politics. I mean, I don't like the idea of saying we can't help Ukraine, we should abandon them to Russia. There are some extreme voices on the right that are essentially saying that. But to the extent we're going to be a little more conditional with our support for Ukraine, if this war goes into a second and a third year, and start saying to Ukraine, listen, you know, you may have to accept some outcomes that are less than ideal. We still have your back. We're going to make sure you survive as a country. We're going to help you get most of your territory back. But we don't want this war to go on indefinitely to try to get every inch back. If, if that's essentially the debate we start having in the United States, partly because of a Republican-controlled House and or Senate, I'm not sure that's so bad, uh, provided that people don't push it so far as to actually cut off the support for Ukraine and leave it vulnerable to an actual Russian takeover. So we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to see what Republicans decide to do with this kind of appropriations power. Uh, but I think year two of this war is going to be different no matter who's in power in the White House and the Congress. And we're going to have to start deciding, are we in for a multi-year conflict or are we going to start trying to look for some small compromises where Ukraine wouldn't get every last thing it wants? Michael, thank you. Michael Hanlon. Okay, we're going to talk a lot more about foreign policy and specifically how to play China post midterms when we are joined by Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass. But first, Chamber of Commerce CEO Suzanne Clark's going to join us. She's got her pulse on the top issues that matter most to corporate America. And she's going to join us with a primer on what the C-suite is thinking and watching next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. It's estimated that nearly $17 billion will have been spent on federal and state races for this election when all says said and done, making it now the most expensive midterms ever. That's according to Open Secrets and CBC's Brian Schwartz covers the intersection of politics and finance and joins us now with a look at who is spending and what issues are drawing in the most money. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So what is it? Who is it? George Soros. Uh, you got people, uh, Richard Uline, Jeffrey Yass, uh, uh, many of these kind of big players who have kind of jumped into these midterms. George shows the number one donor with 128 million. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, actually is like right under the top from five. FT- from yeah. FTX, who like, we were just talking about. Yes. The value of his uh, net worth just dropped from, Becky Quick? Uh, from $15.6 billion as we headed into this morning to under a billion dollars now, yeah, so 94% drop. Yeah, so he's given about $39 million toward these midterms alone. Uh, in the build up. That. <laughs> that's right. In the build up to this deal that's been going right. on now with FTX that he's been announced. How much of this giving has been one sided, meaning one party over another? Because for so long, it w- everybody seemed to be, quote, hedging their bets. Right. Is well, that still the case? Well, George Soros, obviously the number one guy who's giving, as we know, to mainly Democrats. But if you look at the, the rest of the list in the top five, those four. Uh, have given mainly their big money to Republicans this time around. And they, they normally do, but it's, it's, it's a massive amount of money. I mean, you mentioned going into like $17 billion this is going to cost, hundreds and hundreds of millions from, millions from the biggest donors. Chunks of it have gone largely uh, in the top tier to Republicans right. as they try to take the House and the Senate tonight. Where's Peter Thiel on your list this evening? Uh, obviously, he's been very involved with J.D. Vance's campaign. He's very involved in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, he's given like north of 15 million, and it's and it's gone to those two races. And it, it's really interesting to see how that has played out. So originally, again, in the primary, he was behind Blake Masters, J.D. Vance. Then, as we got into the general election, he stepped back from helping J.D. Vance. He was telling people he thought that was in the bag, whether it is or isn't, we will see. And then he started to say, we're going to help help Blake Masters a little bit more in this Arizona Senate race as it got you know, tighter there. Um, separately, when you think about corp- corporate giving, right. you know, when you go back to the prior election and then what happened in the aftermath right. of January 6th, a lot of companies said no more PAC money or we're, we're, we're suspending it or we're putting it on hold. What's actually happening now? Well, some of those PACs who said they're going to pause, right, have resumed since January 6th. They, some of them said they're going to you know, not give anything to Republicans who challenged the results of the election post the January 6th, right? They said they're going to pause. Now they're back at it with giving some checks to Republicans. But, you know, Andrew and guys, I say this. There are people on the Hill who have not forgotten that those corporations pause giving to Republicans, specifically House GOP leadership have not forgotten about that. So prepare, I think, to see some pushback against corporate America as we get into the suit of Congress, if the House is taken in by In what Republicans. context, though? In, in, at least in public statements. I don't think there's going to be some sort of... But does it impact, you know, ta- the tax breaks that, that, that were put in place under Trump and the conversation about whether those stay... Uh, you know, become permanent. The question are is, they, are they no longer permanent because they, they don't like these companies? Well, the question is, it's about you're asking about policy, right? Yep. And we just don't know yet where that's going to go. But I think the minimum, right, the minimum is going to be there's a message being put to House GOP leadership, Kevin McCarthy and company, to not engage with these companies, particularly from conservative activists, to not speak to them, not hold meetings and calls. So what policy that's going to look like, we shall see if they take the House, right, if they become the majority in Congress. But at the very least, there could be a pullback in engaging with these companies in private meetings and phone calls as we get to the new Congress. Brian Schwartz, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, C-suite is watching the midterms very closely, especially how a divided government could potentially impact inflation, um, rates, economic growth, according to the latest MetLife and U.S. Chamber of Commerce Small Business Index uh, According to that, inflation concerns hit a new high with 71% of small business owners saying the worst is yet to come. Let's bring in Suzanne Clark, president and CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Suzanne, have your ears been burning? We've talked about you so much. Andrew especially talks about you. It's not your uh, grandfather's Chamber of Commerce. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know who likes whom. We don't know. Do Republicans like you? Do you like Republicans? Um, do you like big business, uh, big corporations, or just small businesses? Uh, you've heard the expression, if you go, uh, you go broke when you go woke. What happened to the Chamber <laughs> of Commerce? 
Well, if you have all these questions, you should call me up. I'd be happy to talk to well, you we, and why, Andrew we, That's anytime. why we called you to have you on tonight. Anytime. So, of course, look, at the end of the day, the Chamber of Commerce has been around 110 years. We have been through all kinds of governments, all kinds of wars, and we show up every day to help job creators. And what we like are pro-business champions in Congress. And I think after tonight, we're going to have a lot more of them. I think we work with everybody all the time. And if you can get past a tweet or a political headline, as your reporter just said, you're going to see a lot of policy experts working together. I guess one of the, uh, the little tiff we had with a gentleman that, that could be um, speaker of the House said uh, he, he doesn't even want to work with you uh, if he does become speaker uh, or work with the Chamber of Commerce if you're still there, Kevin McCarthy. That's sort of what I'm alluding to. Look, I think, again, I think we work with every office. I think we're going to elect a lot of pro-business champions, and I think they all care deeply about this economy. If you look at their commitment to America plan Front and center is economic security, fighting inflation, working on supply chains, energy independence. And we're going to be there like we always are with deep policy research, with economic impact studies, with boring things that actually at the end of the day make a big difference. We're going to sue the government for overreach. We're going to have chambers of commerce, associations, Fortune 100, 5 million small businesses. They're all going to be there to help advance an economic agenda that helps families and communities across the country. And we're going to be good at it. And I think we're going to see pro-business champions in a pro-business Congress that's going to help get it done. So, Suzanne, what is your number one issue? We've heard from uh, people at the polls, at least the exit polls, that inflation is the number one thing they're focused on. What, what's the number one policy issue you'd like to see to deal with that? I think there are a couple of things. One is, and maybe most immediately, is we're going to have to avoid this rail strike. Two billion dollars a day in damage to the economy if we don't every day that we let a rail stoppage take place. American families dealing with inflation can't handle that. Employers can't handle it right when we're headed into the holiday season. So I think the rail strike is a really important priority and certainly would be inflationary. We also would like the new Congress to really think about the massive regulatory overreach from this administration. It's threatening decades of consensus on competition. It's costing American families and businesses billions of dollars to try to comply with or fight. And we're hoping that that regulatory oversight is going to take place. And then the thing we hear about from small and large company CEOs all the time is a combination of the worker shortage and crime. You know, we just had about 100 chamber leaders from across the country in town. And for the first time, they listed crime as a problem in employing people and keeping customers safe and doors open higher than the worker shortage. Right. Suzanne, um, you know, so many companies, especially uh, during Trump's presidency, I think thought of themselves as a check or a governor on, in some cases, the truth um, in certain instances. And... This was a period uh, during which the Business Roundtable uh, created its pledge around stakeholder capitalism and the like. I'm curious whether you think there's going to be a shift in terms of the way business is going to approach politics going forward, given the backlash that we've seen. It's a good question, although I think some of this, again, has been a lot of more headlines and tweets and kind of good TV than it's been real policy. And, you know, CNBC is what I keep on in my office, in part because I think you do talk about real policy and the economy and what's really happening. And I think that's important. And we ought to turn away from politics tonight and really get back to policy. I would say at the U.S. Chamber, we were really, we never shut down our PAC. And, and we were some of the first people to give money to try to lead people back to a, a more normal political era. I think that companies are anxious to get that done. But look, there is a wing on the far left that flirts with or is actually proponents of socialism. And there is a wing on the far right that does the same thing with populism. And free enterprise doesn't like either one of them. But I do think you'll see companies that have been very active in this political cycle and will continue to be for those pro-business champions that want to get America's economy moving again. Heard a lot of that. I was nodding a lot, uh, Suzanne. So I'm not. I think you might be right about a lot. But but you sort of said that other stuff makes good TV. But then you guys talk about actual issues, which made me think you were saying we don't really do good TV. But I, well, we do both. I, 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 that's not. What, I don't think that. That wasn't really what you meant. Uh, You're always on in my office. I'm telling you. 
So I think you're low regulation, uh, things that help businesses get 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 out of the way of the private sector. uh, So entrepreneurs can do what they do best, providing jobs, growing uh, the economy. These are all things that I used to associate the the chamber with and the business roundtable with. And just for me, it seems like these organizations have lost their their way a little. You need to come visit. You are reading too many headlines. Let me buy you a beer. I feel better. I I feel better. Listen, you got to watch some of the sewing. You say we're buy doing me a beer. I like beer. I'm like yeah, that. Yeah. I'm like that the, Supreme you, Court guy, that Kavanaugh guy. I like beer. I do. Well, and you got to see some of the suits we're taking to the Supreme Court to fight back this regulatory overreach. Then you'd see your grandfather's chamber. Very good. You 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 brought me brought me back, uh, Suzanne. I, I appreciate. it. I'm glad we had this talk on this. I, I did. <laughs> oh, what's good t- oh, it's been good TV and, uh, I think, Grandfather's good Chamber. It's a, it's a, <laughs> Is it Father's Oldsmobile? I, I liked the Grandson's Chamber. I know you do. I know you do. You like the stakeholder, ESG, all these bells and whistles. You, you want to make people do well with the private sector. Let's do that. The rest will take care of itself, Suzanne. The Look, rest will take care of You can't end- stay in business if you pollute the environment. You can't stay in business if you treat the- your employees crappy. At the end of the day, you can't do well. You know, you have to you have, to do, you have right. to do well to do Spike good, Lee right? Said that. And you have to do and you have to do what's right you for do. your consumers, for your employees, for your shareholders, and you know, See? and for your the community. Let's you're all go in. for a beer. Let's That's all good. go I for a beer. We might be there My in treat. The next month or so. We will <laughs> My take treat. you up on that, Suzanne. <laughs> okay. Thank you. In the meantime, we're going to talk technology because there is a lot at stake for big tech companies tonight with that sector down nearly 30 percent year to date. Joining us right now is Dan Niles. He's the founder and senior portfolio manager of the Satori Fund. And Dan, I think a lot of big tech companies would sign up right now for down just 30 percent this year because there are some that are down quite a bit more than that. Um, When you look at the context of what's happening with the midterms, how much does that play in? It seemed like this was a much bigger issue two years ago when you had a lot of uh, people on both sides of the aisle that wanted to regulate these tech companies. Maybe that has passed because the market has done its own damage. Yeah, I think when you look at it, if Republicans pick up the number of seats that people think, that's going to be good for the big tech companies because in general, Republicans are viewed as lighter on big tech regulation. That should help a lot of the social media companies. Um, it should help uh, a fair number of the names that you know the, the Democratic Party really wants to go ahead and regulate more tightly. It's going to help other sectors, obviously, as well, like defense, um, et cetera. But I think on the margin, especially if they, let's say, go after TikTok, that's going to help the social media space quite a bit. And I think there's more likelihood of that happening if there's more of a majority of Republicans in the House and the Senate. So there are different pieces, but all of those things are ones we're thinking about because in general, and we put out a tweet on it this morning, you know, midterms are good for the stock market. Um, On average, during election week, they're up 1.4%, with more importantly, an 83% chance of it being up historically going all the way back to 1930. Then it gains an additional 1.3% through the end of the year. So You know, all of this put together, depending on how the elections turn out, it should be good for stocks in the short term. But don't get me wrong. I'm still very bearish on the longer term. I just think we're in another bear market rally that can have some legs. When an Apple can pre-announce negatively yesterday, less than two weeks after they gave guidance, and people want to take that as that's okay and the stock finishes up, then, you know, it's going to take a lot to take the market down from here. And so that's why we believe this has some legs in the short term before we have to cut numbers again when these guys all report December and guide for the next year. And I think another big concern you have is what the Fed's going to have to do. You think that inflation is going to be much more stubborn than the market maybe has given it credence. What does that mean for stocks in this sector longer term? What direction are they headed? Yeah, I mean, there's nowhere to go but down, right? Because if you look at the long-term history of inflation versus market multiples. When, and we, we've got this on our website, dannows.com, and you can look at the charts. But when you have CPI above 3%, the trailing S&P multiple is 15 times. Right now, it's at 18 and a half times. In addition to that, when you go into a recession, which I think we'll get next year, you have generally a 20% reduction in earnings estimates. And that only happened starting in July for the S&P 500. And you saw this last earnings cycle, right? Um, If you look at Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, those stocks were down 6% in October with the S&P up 8%. 
This month, they're down an additional 5%, with the S&P down only 1%. So we've gotten around to the phase where we're shooting the generals. And to some degree, that's not a bad thing, because that'll help the market find a good fundamental and valuation bottom, which we haven't had till now, because everybody's been hiding in these names. And Disney tomorrow, you know, their numbers are going down from about $5 in EPS to about $4 in EPS. Hmm. 25% reduction for the next fiscal year. So that's another good thing in terms of resetting expectations. Where quite honestly, people have just gotten used to 13 years of easy money. The Fed bails you out every time. The government gives you checks. It props up earnings. But now we're going to have to pay for it with the highest inflation in 40 years. And the Fed, unfortunately, needs to deal with that because Jerome Powell does not want to be the guy that squandered 40 years of price stability. And that's why he said what he what he said, where the risk isn't over tightening. It's not doing enough. So the layoffs that we've seen in the tech sector to date, you think that's just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg? Well, remember, Becky, if you look at the S&P 500 as a whole, less than 20 percent of jobs are from the S&P 500. In fact, if you look at the top 3000 companies, it's about 20 percent. So it's really the small, small, medium business where this is driven from. And the issue, and we've been talking about this for almost two years at this point, is if you look at the labor market, the number of job openings right now is about, you have about 80% more job openings than you have people unemployed. You have actually about 10.7 million job openings and 6.1 million people unemployed. So it's going to take a lot of pain, and specifically, unfortunately, pain in the small and medium business market. That's more tied to a recession versus what's going on in the tech market where, yeah, it's great you see these headlines about you know, layoffs at the big tech giants, but when that's less than 20% of the market, that's not really what's gonna get the job done because the US economy is 75% services-based. So wages is the number one driver of inflation over the long term and used car prices and oil, you know, that's great for headlines, but that's not the driver from a longer term structural sticky perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's the number one thing we're watching and we've unfortunately got a ways to go there. Dan, thank you. My pleasure. And up next, uh, Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass discusses uh, if the outcome of this election could shift the narrative about investing in China. used to that music. Uh, welcome back to CNBC's Business on the Ballot. Uh, with tensions between Washington and Beijing reaching a boiling point over Taiwan, what about the midterm and the results? Could that have an impact on relations between the world's two largest economies? What does it mean for investors? Kyle Bass uh, joins us, founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management. I think this is apocryphal, um, this Mark Twain quote, uh, that if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think he said that, but it's kind of funny. Uh, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? Does this make a difference with our China relations, what happens in the midterms, Kyle? I really don't think so, Joe. I, I think you guys mentioned earlier in, in this broadcast that uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, the one place in D.C. where uh, we can get a, a bipartisan consensus is things related to China, things related to Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and basic human rights uh, you know, when you look at the votes uh, that have happened in our legislature, uh, they're kind of uh, unanimous with, uh, let's say, protecting U.S. national security and projecting our own empathy and our and our uh, um, our love for human rights. Yeah. What in what you do for a living and in, in your your worldview, which we talk about a lot. And I think we talk more about your worldview, really, than, than what you do for a living. What's at stake in your view uh, with what happens in the next couple of days, the kind of results that come in. What could change? Um, what's important to you? I think, you know, the, the fact that we're, we're going to see a pretty substantial red wave, I, I think the Senate ends up at least with 52 uh, Republicans, if not more. And I think that uh, the House ends up with 30 House seats or more on the Republican side. So I, it's important to note that, um, you know, this, this concept of inflation and economy is polling number one across the board. Uh, and, and I think that those polls show you that um, some of the policies, you know, you've been talking about uh, policies, I think, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce earlier. Um, we still don't have an energy transition policy. 
Europe has has uh, has been resigned to uh, just simply put price caps in place and, and do nothing about supply. Uh, we're seeing the New Hampshire Senate race actually f- turn Republican in the polls after being plus five Democrat because uh, uh, of a heating oil and distillate crisis. And we have some really stupid things going on in our country on the energy side that we've got to get right. And I think this midterm is going to be a referendum to a certain extent on inflation. But as a large part of that, it's it's not having a proper energy plan. And that plays into our our place in the world and our security in the world. And it, you don't have to look any further than Ukraine and, and Vladimir Putin and, and China and everything else. I mean, it, it, you're, we're in a much weaker position, the West, based on what you, what you just described. I don't know if the midterm changes that or not. I don't, I don't know what we're going to be able to do. The, the, uh, President Biden still has the power of the, of the pen and the executive order. So it, it, nothing's going to change over the next two years. Well, I mean, you know, when you when you think about who's changing things, the U.S. isn't saber rattling. You know, there's this concept that Biden says, well, we will rush to Taiwan's aid in the event of a, of a Chinese invasion. And then the White House backs that down. I think the White House is doing something proper with its strategic ambiguity. Right. Uh, China doesn't know which which way is up or down in, in our response. Uh, so I, I think that's a deliberate uh, let's just say, uh, um, you know, uh, changing of signals between the White House and the president. I think it's I think it's that was deliberate. So what's happening is China every at every moment uh, is ratcheting things tighter and, and kind of squeezing the noose around Taiwan. You know, they used to run a zone defense and then post Crimea, they went to a man defense and post Pelosi. Uh, they're going to full court press man defense uh, uh, in the in the Taiwan Strait. So I, I think if you read the, the not only the tea leaves, but if you read Xi Jinping's working papers from the 20th Party Congress, they, they actually move the goalposts on, on what it would take to invade Taiwan. In the past, uh, she has said if Taiwan seeks independence or the separatists push for independence, that would be enough to cause China to invade. In this most recent working paper, he said that uh, uh, Taiwan's reluctance to accept reunification uh, is is uh, cause enough for an invasion? So that that goalpost was moved. He installed a war cabinet, and now you you've seen no less than two of our top naval admirals say that we must be prepared for a war as soon as possible. And I, I heard tonight that uh, on on Chinese television from one of my friends in Beijing that she told the PLA to prepare for war. So uh, it it. It's clear as day that that's where we're marching towards. But I think it's really important to note that it's nothing that we are doing as a country that's provoking them. They are just ratcheting tighter and tighter and tighter until they eventually invade. And as you know, China will invade and then somehow through their propaganda outlets, they'll call themselves the victim. This is how they operate. So, Kyle, uh, we asked Michael about this earlier. If you're an American business and you could be Elon Musk with Tesla in China, you could be Tim Cook with Apple in China could be Howard Schultz with Starbucks in China. What what would happen in an, in an instance where there either was some kind of invasion or other kind of military exercise? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you put it uh, uh, best earlier, I think, when you were asking the question about Nike and, and the other companies and Apple, Andrew, I think that uh, it's going to be a complete and total loss. I think when you look back to what she has done in the Chinese legal realm uh, in early 2020, um, you know, they implemented a new, uh, uh, call it, they, they implemented a new policy with their ability to nationalize assets, uh, what foreign assets in China under what they called special, special circumstances. And then they finished by saying uh, uh, in the event of war. So I think it's important to note that with that law and then the, the, the next law they passed, Andrew, uh, middle of 2021, they said uh, if 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 U.S. companies or Western companies are simply complying with Western sanctions, the ex the expats that work at these companies in in China and their assets can they can be detained and their assets can be frozen. I mean, China's put into place every law necessary to nationalize those assets, and unfortunately, the some people some of these big companies are going to get caught with a with a huge uh, loss in China. I've 
privately met with a number of Fortune 500 CEOs, and I'll, I'll leave their names uh, unsaid, who have told me that they agree with my prognostication of where we are in the relationship and that this, okay. that this war seems to be coming sooner rather than later, oh, uh, and that they've been trying to move their supply chains and their assets out of China as quick as they can. But as you know, Andrew, they're not going to come out and make the proclamation uh, in, uh, before they execute this. So you'll get a postmortem on it. All right, Kyle. Kyle Bass, uh, thanks. I, I always feel the same way when you get done, um, and I don't like it, uh, but we need to hear these things, I think. Thanks, Kyle. We'll, we'll uh, see you again soon. Coming up next, uh, we're going to check back in with Dan Clifton from Strategas uh, for some final thoughts on this election night. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. I want to tell you about some news we've just heard this evening when it comes to Tesla. If you've been watching that stock, it's gone from above $225 down to $190 just in the last five days. And now we know part of the reason why Elon Musk, in a, in a securities filing, we're learning, sold 19.5 million shares. That's $3.95 billion worth of it. Uh, he had told us as recently as August that he was done selling, but now we get this news, and that explains at least part of the drop-off that we've seen to this point. I want to bring uh, Dan Clifton from Strategic Research uh, Partners back into the conversation uh, and to connect it back to Elon Musk. He had just tweeted out yesterday that he was going to vote for Republicans because he wanted a divided Congress. That's something that it sounds like you uh, desperately, I don't know, desperately, but you you want. Um, As the hour has progressed or two hours has progressed since we saw you last, uh, you may be getting closer to your wish. What do you think? Yeah, so first, I, we don't have the luxury of choosing one side or the other. We just got to get it right for our clients. Uh, I still think it's very likely the Republicans are going to win the House based on the returns that we're seeing. We've only seen a few seats flip uh, so far. Uh, the data has been coming out a little bit slower than we had anticipated. Uh, but the Senate is where the real rubber hits the road. It's clear the Republicans are not going to win the New Hampshire Senate race. Investors are now taking down their odds of the Republicans winning the Pennsylvania Senate race. And I can tell you, Georgia is much closer due to ticket splitters. Uh, the Republican governor's doing well. Herschel Walker not doing as well. And so that's right. going to put it right back where we talked about at the beginning of the show. Arizona and Nevada are going to be the key races on whether the Republicans are going to get the Senate. I would say it's about a 55, 60 percent odds based on the initial data that we're seeing. That's down from 80 when uh, when the market closed today. And really, the average has been about 70 percent. So you're starting to see those odds come down until you start seeing more data come through. But it definitely looks like the Republicans are going to have control of the House, and they still have a very good shot at uh, at least a better than 50 percent chance shot of getting the Senate. And and just answer this, if you could, in 20 seconds. We talked to a number of guests throughout the past two hours who effectively suggested that, yes, the stock market may move and move higher based on a divided government and based on some of the historical stats that you provided at the very beginning of our conversation. But they also seem to suggest that come six months from now, come a year from now, that lots of other things may take over and that actually things could turn the opposite direction. We 100 percent agree. We've never had a recession in the third year of a president's term, and the market is putting a better than 50 percent probability on a recession next year. That trumps the rest of everything else that we're talking about. That's number one. Number two, if we don't get the debt ceiling raised in the lame duck session of Congress, you're going right. to have a brand right. new Republican Dan. House coming in, right. and you're going to have budget go trench warfare. Right. So there are definitely headwinds in 2020. Excellent. We got to we got to go. This is a, this is actually a real break. So thanks for joining us for this uh, CNBC special, Business on the Ballot. You can head over to NBC News for continuing coverage uh, with Lester Holt, Savannah Guthrie, and the NBC News team. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.